On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about policing because, boy, has policing ever been in the news for the last number of weeks. Uh, we're chatting with the head of the Hamilton Police Association about a number of issues that the events of the last number of weeks have raised. We're also talking about the temporary men's shelter down at First Ontario Centre. There are concerns about what's happening there, not because of how the organizers are running it, not because of the execution of the place itself, simply because it's now nice outside which means that the people who are using the facility are going outside and milling about and having contact with people who may not be as closely monitored. We'll explain. And we are talking to two members of Teenage Head about one of the most notorious, infamous moments in Canadian, well, in Hamilton anyway, music history. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may have noticed that police have been in the news the past few days, few weeks. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you really ought to start paying attention to what is going on in the world around you. It is impossible not to see how policing and issues around policing have become a laser focus of many people and all kinds of different things are now being proposed for how to control police, fix police, not fun, whatever. There's all kinds of things that are being thrown out there. Um, numerous discussions going in all kinds of numerous directions. Even here in Hamilton, these things are coming up right now. Clint Toulin is the president of the Hamilton Police Association. He joins us now. Clint, how are you this evening? I'm very well, Scott. How are you? Excellent. I'm great. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you doing this. I know it's a busy time. Um, is, let, let's, thanks for having me. Well, let's go right to the crux. Of, let's go right to the hardest part of this thing. Uh, when you've watched the video, and I know you have, you have to have watched the video of the officers in Minneapolis uh, who were kneeling on George Floyd's neck. What do you see? Well, it's it's funny how you put that, because I'll be honest with you, I could only watch bits and pieces of it. I couldn't watch it uh, in its totality. Um, and what I can tell you, Scott, is uh, for me personally, it was shocking. It was it was uh, embarrassing. Um, and I think you'll find every police officer who witnesses the behavior of a bad police officer, how, how much that infuriates us. Um, and I, I know I can speak on behalf of all of the Hamilton police officers uh, who are feeling the exact same way, shocked, embarrassed, disgusted by the behavior. I have a tough time calling uh, that particular individual, individual Derek Chauvin, a police officer. So uh, am I then interpreting that you would look at that and say that was excessive force? You know, it's funny, I don't have the context for all of it, but just looking at what I've seen, I can tell you as I'm watching the video, I keep saying to myself, why don't you just get off his neck? I kept repeatedly saying that to myself. My question, and you can answer this because you, you are a cop, you've been a cop, is um, would I be wrong that the safest place for a prisoner, if that's what the person is at this point, someone who's in your guard, is the safest place not the back of the cruiser with the door closed? It is absolutely. It can't, it, and and there are different uh, sets of circumstances which, which, which certainly change that. My understanding is that um, he refused to get into the cruiser because he said he was uh, claustrophobic. Again, this is just reading through some of the media reports. So I don't know what is true and what isn't, but absolutely, it's the safest spot for both the person who is under arrest and the police officers involved. 
Because that was the thing when I watched it, that was the thing I wondered is why would you just not, he, he didn't seem to be fighting. He wasn't armed. Why would you not just pick him up and put him in the back of the cruiser and close the door? And then none of this has happened. And it, it just seems like, you know, so much because of one thing that you could have done that you didn't do. Absolutely. And, and, and again, there's, there's context that, you know, it, oftentimes you'll hear me and, and I will certainly, I'm uh, obviously as a police officer, um, I believe in the, the due process. I believe in the opportunity to defend oneself and to explain oneself. That's what I do for a living right now, making sure that my officers have their side of the story being told. Um, we're, we're certainly relying on a, on a lot of um, rumor, innuendo, that kind of thing. So there is going to be more facts that roll out. I'm sure of that. But again, I just I, I could not fathom, um, you know, having a prisoner handcuffed behind the back uh, clearly not struggling and saying that they can't breathe. I just, I just cannot fathom any explanation as to, to justify that kind of action. How do you, and I mean, you're not the ultimate arbiter and you're not the, 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 the guy who the, the thing ends at your desk, but how do you ensure that your members never let that kind of thing happen here or something similar to that in any way? Well, there's accountability amongst ourselves, and, and of course, I'm sure you know the other three officers have now been charged involved in that. We certainly, uh, and I can assure you, we do police each other. I think that that's a significant portion of it. You have to be able to make sure that your officers are going to feel comfortable stepping in in a situation like that without a fear of any kind of uh, retribution or otherwise. I'm fully confident in Hamilton we have that. We have the ability for officers to call one another out, and it does happen on a regular basis. I think that's one of the, the keys. And having the support of both the supervisors and, and our organization as well, the, the union, the, the association that represents everyone. We have to take a break in 15 seconds, but if you had been one of the other officers by, nearby, would you have gone up and pushed him off or done something, or do you just tell him to get off? I would have been, uh, it would have just depended. I would have made sure that he was off his neck. Absolutely. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Clint, we have heard now, and I'm guaranteeing you've heard this as well, that in light of what happened and another claim of police brutality, though, interestingly, this one, I don't know that body cameras would have helped because there was lots of video cameras and everybody saw what happened anyway. But we've heard renewed calls again for police to wear body cameras, chest cameras. Where do you stand on this? I uh, personally, I support them. I uh, I've been doing this job for five and a half years now, and I can tell you that uh, in the vast majority of cases, um, any police officer that's a little bit reluctant to, to engage in, in in wear a body camera, it would help them. Uh, it would prove that their actions and their behavior was justified. And I think uh, one of the biggest things that the public would be allowed to see is, is exactly what the police officer has to see. And I think that that would be uh, a moment of, of trust building between the community and the police. Um, it's, it is a complicated issue when you look at budgeting and you're looking at uh, a, a number of different things, everything from privacy rights to those kinds of things. But I, personally, I think that it would be beneficial for everybody involved. Do you get the sense that across the force, across the service, that that sentiment exists widely, or are you in the minority with that? I would say that it's, I have never uh, been exposed to any kind of anti-body-worn uh, camera um, uh, narrative. So I, I think I, I'm pretty confident that if, if given the opportunity, the, the officers in Hampton would, would welcome that opportunity. 
and uh, would would obviously, um, you know, we're in Hamilton. It's a it's a group of police officers that want to do the best job that they can, and they want to serve their community. And so, if that's a something that's um, that's put in place, our officers would openly uh, openly welcome it. Today, and maybe yesterday, in the last couple of days anyway, there have also been, and I'd never heard this before, but there has now been a discussion that seems to be getting some ear. Now, whether this means it's going to happen or anything would happen, but the idea of defunding the police. Now, I don't think anybody is actually suggesting we get rid of all the police force, police department, and we have nothing, uh, which that would be a great idea until the first time someone showed up at your door to rob you, and then you'd say, okay, well, where's the help coming? But what the suggestion is, let's take several million dollars away from the police and put it on social workers or other people who could do some of the jobs police maybe aren't as qualified to do and do them potentially a little bit better. Where, what do you think about the idea of moving some money into other areas that would potentially save police from having to do things that their training as hey doesn't really qualify them for? Well, you know, Scott, that's really complicated. Um, we're, um, we would be considered a downstream institution or organization. So um, the organizations that are upstream from us, um, those are the often, I'm not going to say the causes, but when you look at issues surrounding mental health, when you're looking at legal issues, when you're looking at educational issues and family issues and, and socioeconomic issues, those are all upstream from us. And ultimately what happens is we deal with the problems once they're already existing. So uh, defunding us, we are the 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 365 days of the year. We are there to help and to do everything that we can. Taking money from us uh, to fund a particular area it, it would be counterproductive at best. And, and it, I'm sure you know we've insti- um, instituted programs in the Hamilton Police Service, such as the MCERT, the COAST program. Those, uh, we, we do some shared funding with that, with the idea of dealing with that exactly. The problem is that, um, and I've heard the statistic over and over again, about 20% of what we do is actual criminal uh, um, activity, that, that real hardcore policing, if you will. The problem is, while the other 80% doesn't necessarily fall uh, under that category, each and every one of those cases could potentially. So again, you know, we are very good in the, the vast majority of cases of dealing with the issues that are presented to us, but we certainly need the funding, the training, and the, the support to be able to do those. I'm sure that... Um probably in the eyes of a lot of members of the public, based again on what happened in Minneapolis, there would be a an outcry if somebody, even if, even if they could be defended almost as warranted, but if somebody here was to be harmed by a police officer, as I say, even if it was somewhat justified or fully justified, what I'm wondering about is now that this has happened and now that the police officers here have seen the response down in the States, does it change what they do? Is it in the back of police officers' minds that this could happen, this could lead to these problems if I do something here? I would be completely misleading everybody if I were to say that, no, it wouldn't affect the way you, you approach a particular situation. Of course, like it, it's just human nature. Um, but with that being said, uh, thank goodness, particularly in Hamilton, our officers, um, we see enough and we do enough that we react. We don't t- take a ton of time worrying about 
you know, the long-term consequences. Our officers know very well that things like there's a camera on you 24 hours a day, like when you're at work, it's always expect a camera to be pointed at you. Um, Is that a good thing? Is that a good thing though, that it's in their mind? Yeah, I think that that is actually. Um, And, and you know what? We are accountable. Um, We are the public and the public is the police. There's no two ways about that. We are accountable. Um, I think, I mean, what we saw in Toronto with uh, that young lady that, um, and I'm going to say the word fell from the balcony. I think that that's a good example of what you've just said. You know, you have police interaction and it, it seemed like a lot of people jumped to conclusions before any of the facts have come out. And so far, all we've really heard from that as well is rumors and, and some misinformation. So there's a danger of that. And it's in the backs of the minds of, uh, of police officers. It's not going to stop anybody from doing their jobs. But I can tell you, it does worry me. It does concern me that um, a well-intentioned interaction that doesn't go well, and it's in no way the fault of the police officer, that it's going to be maybe conflated with another particular incident like the one in Minneapolis, or people are going to react before they have the information. Clint Tulin, president of the Hamilton Police Association. Appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you saw the Hamilton Spectator today, either the printed version or the online version, you might have seen a piece about concerns that are emerging about the temporary men's shelter at First Ontario Centre. This was built because when COVID came, the men who were in the other shelters, they had to spread them out so they wouldn't catch it. And that meant there was an overflow while the arena became the perfect place. And the story is not, and the concerns are not about the operation of the shelter. Um, most everything that I've heard about the operation of the shelter has been complimentary that it's been, it was put together very quickly. It's been executed well. Things have been done as well as possible with medical tests and everything else. And the proof of that is in the fact that I believe only two people in shelters across the city have got COVID. It's been done well. The concerns now come from challenges that frankly seem difficult to navigate for anybody. They, they seem like they may be out of the control of anybody who's going to be working in these places. Well, I want to bring in the chief operating officer of the Good Shepherd Center, who is, which is behind this. They were asked to run the facility by the city. Catherine Kalinowski is the COO. She joins us now. Catherine, how are you today? Hi, Scott. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, as I said a moment ago, by almost every account that I have seen, this thing has worked pretty darn well. There's been two cases of COVID, maybe one that depends on how you want to break it down. Um, the protocols that have been in place have generally worked. Where this starts to get interesting and where this starts to get difficult, is probably a better word than interesting, is that now that you are introducing nice weather and so people are leaving the facility during the daytime, they're in there, they're safe at night, but then they go outside and they want to spend the time outside and they are around other people who may not have been checked or may not be as safe. Is that a fair statement? Uh, certainly the shelters are, are not able or, or do we want to require that people stay locked inside the shelters so people can go out if they have business to do or feel the need to do so. And certainly anybody in our community who's moving about during this time of COVID uh, runs the risk of infection. 
and you can't force them, correct? You couldn't have somebody standing outside one of your staff people because right now people are gathering. If people can picture where First Ontario Centre is under the electronic sign at the corner of Bay and York, there are porta potties now there and there are oftentimes significant gatherings of people. You couldn't put a staff person there and force them to socially distance, could you? Uh, certainly, I don't think shelter workers have the ability to force people to socially distance. Um, I think one of the important considerations in this conversation, just to give it context, is that uh, people who are precariously housed or homeless who live in our community have a street presence now, and there was a street presence prior to the pandemic. I think that the um, uh, gathering that's happening at uh, outside the First Ontario Centre uh, just brings that into stark relief. And so the question really is, how do we maximize people's uh, health and well-being, um, and how do we uh, try and create conditions that are inclusive but also safe and appropriate for everyone? And absolutely, this, the COVID has not suddenly created a bunch of people who are living on the street. Um, absolutely not. What has maybe changed a bit, though, and and you know, the, even from the city, they were saying this is because so many of the places. For example, that people who live on the street might use as bathroom facilities are now closed. Tim Hortons or Jackson Square or whatever. You put six porta potties out front of this the arena, and that becomes a bit of an attraction. People will come there because they need those facilities. It's a the intent is good. You're trying to help people, but it does tend to make it a gathering place. It absolutely does. I, I think in some ways it's very heartening the way stakeholders in the homeless serving sector have come together and really demonstrated collaboration and innovation and creativity in responding to the crisis, that the the crisis overlaid on the crisis of homelessness. Uh, But one of the big gaps, I think, in our community has been uh, finding spaces uh, for people to go who need to use washrooms, who need showers to wash their clothes, or even simply um, practice good hand hygiene as a way of preventing infection. It, it has been a real challenge and not one that I feel a gap that I feel we have um, effectively responded to. And, and again, so let's go from there to what the concern is here. And that is, um, I truly do believe the intent was good and the intent was honorable to put those bathrooms out front so people could use them. What has happened though, I think inadvertently, again, because they're now a gathering place and because that is so close to the place where your people in the shelter are coming and going, you have a lot of people who may be very safe in the shelter from COVID because they've got the protocols and they're doing the social distancing inside, now interacting with a bunch of people outside who aren't following those rules necessarily. So there could be a spread. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Congregate living settings are a a potential source of widespread infection and something that we're really concerned about. And again, I would say that anybody who's moving out in the community, and I would uh, reinforce that that is not only people who are experiencing homelessness, lots of people are moving out in the community, are at risk for infection. So we are very vigilant around screening and very concerned about seeing Uh, the transmission of COVID amongst a population of people who are often vulnerable due to chronic health conditions um, and and possibly could become more ill than, than others if they are infected. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Catherine, something else that came up, and I heard a lot of people saying it today, the area out there in the courtyard, um, it's not exactly pretty. Um, there is garbage. The porta potties are of questionable cleanliness at times. There have been syringes in the area. Do any of those things, I don't know what the science is right now, do any of those things compromise the immunity enough that it would be allowing someone to be more susceptible to COVID? You know, I'm not a healthcare provider, so I, I, I'm not very well equipped to answer that question. But certainly I understand that there is concern about safety and the optics of having large numbers of people gathered where there are belongings strewn around and possibly dispo- uh, discarded needles and that sort of thing. I think the question we have to ask ourselves, though, is where is it as a community that we expect people who are homeless to go when public places um, that normally would be available to them are no longer available to them, and when, quite frankly, they don't have homes of their own to shelter in. So I think sometimes we talk about concern that, you know, uh, guys will go into the uh, shelter at First Ontario and and get infected by being outside and that sort of thing. But I, I wonder sometimes if we're not more concerned about having to confront the visual reality of homelessness in our community. I think the bigger concern is what are we going to do in the immediate, medium, and long term to address the crisis that is homelessness? COVID is is another layer of that, but the reality is we have significant numbers of very vulnerable people in our community who simply do not have a roof over their head or the supports they need. So what is the, I mean, look, you, you just threw the question out there and I'm not sure it was a rhetorical question. I think it was a legitimate question, but let me throw it back at you. What do we do? Let's leave the, the very short term here because we are in the middle of a, still a situation. What do we do about this when you can't, I don't think, open up all the shelters again and jam every, not jam every, you know what I'm saying? You can't put it back the way they were no. right away before. What do you do? Well, I think that we have to be really realistic. Homelessness is not a new crisis, but it's certainly one that that we know the answers to. The reality is that if you give people a place to live and you give them the kinds of supports they need to settle into a home, to sustain that home and to become integrated and, and uh, functioning in a healthy way in our community, they will thrive and they will contribute to the resilience of our community We have a housing crisis in this community, lack of affordable housing, lack of appropriate support. Lots of people who find themselves in the crisis of homelessness are fleeing situations of violence and abuse. They have serious mental health issues. They're struggling with addiction or they need other kinds of support. So if we don't want to find ourselves faced with situations like we're seeing outside of the FOC right now, or we don't want to see homelessness in our community laid bare on the street, then we need to make really wise investments in getting people housed and supporting them. And the the business case is very clear. It is far less expensive for taxpayers to help people get housed and stay housed than it is to call in expensive systems, including shelters and hospitals and the criminal justice system to deal with this issue. And that, I, I mean, that I agree with wholeheartedly. The, the difficulty, I suppose, and, and again, tell me I'm wrong here. The difficulty is, um, as I say, there have been, I've seen pictures of, you know, piles of syringes out front and we know, so there is drug use, which affects your cognitive thinking. Uh, and there are clearly people on the street who have mental health challenges, which is terribly sad. No one's, no one's, 
anything other than very saddened by that. But it's it's not easy necessarily just to say, here's your house, stay there. These These are very complicated issues. They are very complicated issues, but I would suggest to you that in Canada and, and in fact, in many nations across the world, we have moved to evidence-based practices that clearly demonstrate that if you provide people with adequate affordable housing and you give them the supports they require and support them in their autonomy and dignity, that in fact, regardless of those very significant challenges, they can do very well and they can stay housed. The data exists. The evidence is there. We just need to do that work. Catherine, just one more thing, and, and we, we wish we had more time, but uh, you mentioned about the visual of it. And I mean, look, there's there's no question that when people see that courtyard out front of First Ontario Centre, it is not a aesthetically pleasing thing. There's garbage and there's clothes mm-hmm. piled up and everything else. Is that something that, is that does that kind of thing and I, I, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, turn people who aren't in that circumstance, does that turn people off and make them look away just because it looks disgusting and so they say, I don't want to deal with it? Absolutely. And I think that those kinds of conditions can contribute to the stigma that folks who are experiencing homelessness live with. I would also challenge, and we need to address those issues as a community, but I would also challenge people to consider the crisis that they don't see, all the people who are homeless in our community that you don't see, particularly women, youth, and Indigenous people who don't show up in the landscape in the same way. They're hiding in plain sight. So I think we have the the issues that we can see on our city streets. I think we also need to grapple with the ones that are hidden in plain sight. It is, uh, it is, it is the absolute proof that there are some things that just don't have easy, just, just don't have easy answers. And I think this is one of them. Uh, Catherine Kalinowski, COO of Good Shepherd, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 40 years ago, some of you, well, some of you are old, old enough to remember what happened 40 years ago, or at least to even to remember 40 years back. CNN, now this seems hard to believe, CNN went on the air 40 years ago this year. Gary Newman's song Cars was number one for a while, 40 years ago. Chris Everett and Bjorn Borg won the French Open, that's how long ago it is. The Blues Brothers movie debuted. Roberto Duran beat Sugar Ray Leonard at Montreal, remember that fight? And there was one more thing. 40 years ago this week, Hamilton's teenage head became part of Canadian music lore Uh, Not for a song, although they had a bunch of those, but for being at the center of what became known as the Toronto Punk Rock Riot or the Toronto Punk Riot, whichever one you want to call it. Uh, It is a part of Hamilton history that if you don't know, well, we're going to tell you. And when I say we, I mean teenage head bass player Steve Mann and teenage head guitarist Gord Lewis, who both join me. Guys, thanks for doing this today. No, no problem, Scott. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, yeah. It's a Steve, let's start with you here because uh, there are not many bands. There's a few, but there's not many bands that get to say they once started a riot. <laughs> I guess is, we're going to have to own that. <laughs> is that a good thing? You know, what they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Oh, well, especially Gord, because at that time, um, you guys were, well, you're about five years old then as a band. You, you, were, you were still sort of in your infancy, weren't you? It was 80, so we, we started in 75. So, yeah, about five years, yeah, as a band, yeah, yeah. But we were uh, all in our early 20s. Okay, and by that point, and I don't remember this, by the time you get into the Ju- into June of 1980, Steve, 
how many of the songs that you guys, that people would know from you guys that became well-known uh, teenage head songs, how many of those were already in the playlist? Most of them, or was that still before that had kicked in? Mm, that's a trivial question, isn't it? <laughs> Quite a few of them. With that would have been Frantic City would have just come out a couple months prior to the, to the, to the show at Ontario Place. So we had two full albums, and I mean, a lot of, a lot of the fans liked those first two albums. Absolutely. And Gord, people then knew, people in Hamilton for sure knew who you were. What about elsewhere? Did, 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 was there a huge, that you knew of anyway, was there a huge Teenage Head fan following outside of Hamilton that you were aware of at that time? Um, well, we had, we had uh, played uh, Toronto, I'm pretty sure. Like, uh, I'm not exactly sure where we played, uh, but uh, I know we had been playing a lot. So we we were playing playing around quite a bit. So uh, I'd say there were quite a few people that knew the band outside of Hamilton. Steve, do you? Um, th- this was called, and we'll get into the riot in a second and what happened. But this was called the 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 punk riot or punk rock riot, whatever you want to call it. And you guys were for the longest time identified as a punk rock band. Is it is that something that you have? Th- does that make sense to you? Did you consider yourself a punk band? Uh, whether I did or not, the timing, you just couldn't, you know, it was, it, there's way better than being called something else at that time. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like what, what would have been yeah. the worst thing you could have been called? Yeah. I guess I'm just saying the punk rock's not such a bad handle to take. I'll take that. No, that's true. Gord, was that, was that, was that okay with you? Uh, yeah, it was okay. And it, it became okay over time. Like it's a, over time, it's uh, a legitimate uh, genre of music. So uh, uh, to be included in in that type of thing, I don't really have a have a problem with it. Um, I, I it, it wasn't punk like you would think about punk. Like though, it was uh, it was it was pretty straightforward, straight straight ahead rock and roll. Like uh, um, there, there there were there were influences by uh, a lot of rock and roll bands like even on frantic city we do an eddie cochran song um and uh since taylor brand new cadillac and wild one which would be i guess jerry lewis so uh, um that, that's where we came from and steve you know the again the 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 name or the the genre they call it punk rock now both of you guys interesting both of you guys um come from I don't know if the word is straight lay, certainly uh, upstanding civilized families, right? I mean, you're, you're, the, the, what did your mom and dad, both of you, cause you were still young guys back at that time. What did mom and dad say for both of you when you were, when teenage head was identified as a punk band and this was the thing Were were they like, yeah, great punk, bring it on. Or were they like, Oh, come on guys. Do we have to be in punk bands? Yeah, I'm sure all our folks were a little worried, a little concerned, and that wasn't even <laughs> punk rock. That just meant anything in rock and roll. I mean, even my mom would pick up Rolling Stone magazine and see the F word, and she just looked at me like, what are you reading? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, better to just stick with a day job, but they were all very encouraging, of course. All right, so 1980, before June 1980, the uh, somebody decides to book you guys at the Ontario Place Forum for a show, which I, I've, I've seen enough shows there over the years. I grew up in Toronto. It's it's probably the least punk band place on earth, quite frankly. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I just of it that way. <laughs> I, well, I, just, I can't think of it as, as a place where you would go, oh, yeah, that's a natural place for what we'd call a punk band to be playing in. Gord, start us through this. What happens? You get there. Um, what happens? What did you guys know was going on, if anything? Well, actually, uh, one of the weirdest things for me about that uh, that day 
if I had to take a subway to get to the gig, I'd be <laughs> in a, a subway and a bus. And, and, and to this day, I still can't figure out why somebody didn't pick me up and, and give me a ride <laughs> down to the show. But what I remember most is when it was is when I got there. It would have been because I think we were doing a sound check. I think we did. Anyway, uh, I got there about four o'clock in the afternoon, and there were all these people sitting in the seats, like not packed or anything like that, but enough people to wonder why, like that, why you're sitting here, like what are you? And, and it was only later that I realized that uh, people were getting there really, really early, and. Um, and and getting a and getting a seat, it, it, it hit me later why that's what I saw. Um, but uh, well, Steve, yeah. this this Steve, this facility, and again, I think most people are familiar with it or were at the time. It holds I don't know three thousand, maybe thirty five hundred. And is that what you were expecting was going to be there? Even though there had been a lot of publicity about this, is that what you thought was going to happen? Uh, I don't know. We don't want to spread fake news. I'm going to say that was a eighteen thousand seat forum, wasn't it? Uh, I, is it only 3,500? Oh yeah, the, the Ontario Place Forum was just a small. Oh, I think it was just really? a small place. Well, yeah. Oh, you're playing. You're playing funny now. <laughs> yeah, no, it was not a great big place. All the way around. Are you sure, Scott? Well, maybe wow. it was bigger than that, but I don't think it was. Certainly not fifteen thousand. No. No way. No way. But so you get there because, well, and that, that kind of goes to the story, right? Because all of a sudden, are, were you guys up on stage when they closed the gates? So you didn't even know some of you, what was going on? Were you guys playing when the stuff started? I, I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. We, no. we obviously were playing Scott. People all right. pissed off. Mm-hmm. They would have heard the songs wild one. Oh, they're doing disgusting. I want to go, man. And they get told by all those young kids working there, no, the forum's closed. What are they supposed to do, turn around and go home? <laughs> yeah. So we would have been playing for sure when all that trouble was started. So, yeah, so they closed, the, the story is that they closed the gates because it was full, however many people yeah. it held, and we can go back and review that later. But however many it held, uh, they couldn't get, there were thousands that couldn't get in. <laughs> and the story goes that then they started busting down the gates and they started trying to climb over the gates and they were jumping into the water by the forum to try to swim in to the show. That was a first having people swim into your concerts. I'm sure that was, that had never been done before. <laughs> and never since. <laughs> but what you guys, they, when you were up playing, you couldn't gates? tell. Like, did they close the gates to the park? Like, is that what, but you that's, couldn't that's... get even into the park. Oh, I think you Possibly. could get into Ontario Place, but it was just the forum, the gates to get to the to the the oh, venue okay. you couldn't get into. Okay. But you guys, I mean, it sounds like you were up there playing and had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. We had no idea. We just knew it was successful. There's lots of people and they liked us. Great. What a great place. So when did you then find out what had happened? Well, I found out the next day when I went to pick up a newspaper and I, and I read it in the newspaper. And, and what's your, do you remember what your reaction was when you read it, not even knowing this had happened? Uh, well, actually I was pretty impressed. I, I knew there were a lot of people there cause we, you know, we, we played to them and, and it was very suffocating. Uh, but, uh, I, I just know that we had a, a gig that night, the day after, and, uh, I was going to go get ready for that and, and go play wherever we played the day after Ontario place. Mm-hmm. 
Sean, was there ever a thought though, that after you've been the authors, not by intentionally, but when you've been the authors of a riot, that there may be trouble getting bookings later that people may say, yeah, I don't think I want to get them or, or does this give you guys such credibility now within the rock world that it's like, man, everybody's going to book us now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, like I said, it didn't do us any harm. Like Gord said, we played the next night and the next night and the next night. And, you know, uh, it, it's not like we stood on stage and said, okay, everybody throw chairs. All we did was <laughs> play a really, really good tight show. And, and there's just too many people there. It wasn't really a riot per se that we incited. We just need to no. play bigger places. I am, so, I, I think... One of you guys or somebody posted on Teenage Head's Facebook page yesterday or the day before or something like that, uh, a comment that, and I was surprised by this, although maybe I shouldn't have been, that even today, improbably, no one has ever emerged or shown up with a bootleg recording of that concert. There's just no evidence of it other than you guys talking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that right? Uh, Could you I've imagine? Never, I've, never, I've never seen a photograph or... or uh uh a, a tape of it or, or anything like that mm-hmm. i can't even imagine what would happen today in 2020 with cell phones yeah. and everything else i mean you guys would have been around the world with that one shows <laughs> you how long ago it was <laughs> no kidding no kidding and, and i did read something once upon i think it was an interview that uh that frankie did afterwards it said that like within the next couple of weeks you guys sold ten thousand albums or something just because of the publicity from this there you go yeah it didn't mm-hmm. really hurt us at all has anyone ever come up to you guys in years afterwards saying, yeah, you know what? I was, I was there at that show. I was part of the riot. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, just the other day. Really? <laughs> yeah. I forget who I was talking to. I can't remember if I, uh, if it was a stranger or if I knew him. I, I, I don't remember, but yeah, uh, somebody told me that, uh, they were at Ontario place. Well, you guys are still at it, which is amazing. You're still at it. You're still doing shows and still uh, still grinding it out. Uh, Gord, I'll ask you first, and then I'll ask Steve this question, because I always love asking this. Anytime I get to talk to someone who has been in a successful band for a really long time, because every successful band, part of their success is going to be they have three or four or five or whatever number of hit songs that you are obligated to almost by some sort of universal law that you must play at every single concert you ever play. Gord, as I say, I'll go to you first. Are there ever days when you say, man, I wish there was this song or this song or this song that I did not have to play today that I'm just tired of it? Or is it always good to do it? No, it's always good to do it. Um, uh, I, 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 I consider us very fortunate that we do have a catalog of songs that, uh, that people like. And, and I think that's what one reason why we're surviving is that people want to hear those songs because they like them. And uh, that's nothing but an honor, really. Steve, tell me, though, the other question that I've always asked people, and, and you know, I, I find this one fascinating as well. You're involved in coming up with these, building these songs, writing these songs, creating these songs. Can you explain what it is like to be up on stage having people sing your song back to you? Hmm. That's not a bad question for Gordy because Gordy Gordy was really more of the writer than I was. Well, Gord, take it away. What is it like when something you created now everybody knows it and they're singing it back to you? It's got to be a cool feeling. No, it's a, it's a, it's a really good feeling. Yeah, dude, it's uh, and it was a goal that. Uh, well, I think it was just us, us as a band that we set uh, uh, 
43 years ago is that we're going to play original music. Like, uh, we're, we're not going to be a cover band. We were never a cover band. We were always a band that uh, played original songs, songs that we wrote. So that's just been our whole career. And to have people actually know those songs and, and sing those songs, um, again, like, uh, that's, that's the whole idea why you do this. Like, uh, is, is for something like that to happen. Uh, so, no, it's great. It is, uh, it is a great story for people who don't know the full thing. Again, it's, uh, the Teenage Head has a very colorful history and this, this was one of the, uh, one of the great moments in that. And, uh, guys, listen, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk today. Steve Mann and Gord Lewis from Teenage Head. Thanks for the time. Well, thank, thank you, Scott. Just, I just got something in from the fact checker. Capacity was 2,500. 2,500. Okay. So well, yeah, 15, there was 15,000 people showed up. Well, <laughs> see, we, we solved something. We solved something tonight. Thank you, thank you. There you go. Guys, I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks. Bye-bye. Steve Mann and Gord Lewis from Teenage Head. That's a great Hamilton band. You know, uh, one of the, and this is kind of embarrassing perhaps, but one of the very first times I ever saw them play live, and I've seen them a few times now, they played at the corner. We were just last hour talking about the corner of Bay and York where the thing is going on with the men's shelter. Right under the sign Cops Coliseum back then when the Bulldogs were in the finals a number of years ago, 2003, I believe Gord's brother was the president of the Bulldogs at the time and teenage head played on the street corner and it was great. It was great. They are just, they're one of those bands that they're just fun when people aren't rioting and throwing chairs and busting down walls and having to be fished out of the water by police. You know what? It's all part of the show. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.